the gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the good news according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, in, still in the midst of raising four kids in New York City for the most part, uh, two still in the house at this moment, you might imagine that one of the things we've been very busy with over the years is navigating the school system. And by we, I mean my amazing wife, uh, a part-time job navigating all the schools. And when we explain to people outside of New York City how it works to get into high schools, I'm just basically like, you know how Rush works with sororities and fraternities? They're like, yeah, I'm like, it's basically like that. It's very complicated. It's very confusing to get kids into the right high school. And then it gets even more intense with college. You know, I was just reading uh, more articles. Somebody just uh, baffled... not baffled. They uh, basically stole money to help people navigate the FAFSA system, like hundreds of millions of dollars this woman raised and sold all so that people can help get navigating uh, financial aid to get into the school of their choice. Because we have this belief, most of us, that getting into the right school, getting into the right community will set us up, will become like those people, and it will help us to change our lives in some way. And so if you can get into the right school uh, that focuses on the things that you're good at and it's the most competitive and sets you up for the best college, then you're going to get into that high school. And then the same thing with college. You know, maybe down in the deep south where Brian and I uh, went to school, it's really cool because you can spend the rest of your life talking about your college's football team or basketball team or whatever. Up here, it might be like, you know, I got into one of the Ivies, you know, so we're, we're set up. We're going to get into wherever we want. Maybe you get older and you think about the similar kinds of stuff, you, a prestigious internship or fellowship uh, or clique of people, a uh, special club in the city, perhaps, something that you can get into that will set you up for the life that you want to live. And all of us have this desire to be inside a certain circle, a circle of fame or a company or someone else's embrace or a certain city 
maybe nowadays they actually say this, like, I want to have followers, right? Follow me. Lots of people following me on social media or in life. And so we will work hard. We will hustle. We will sacrifice money and planning and work, all sorts of things to get into the right community, the right group, the right school. The Bible speaks about this a lot, and the ancient world was actually no different than ours in some ways. You already heard this passage. I'm just going to allude to pieces of it as we reflect. But Jesus is walking. He's gone far away from home, from Nazareth, gone to this city by the sea, city called the City of the Gentiles earlier in Isaiah. He's gone to the Sea of Galilee, and he's spending time there. It says he's living there, studying the community, studying the culture. And he sees two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, He observes them, maybe day after day, but he observes them this time casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen. So he's paying attention to what they're good at, what they're interested in, what their livelihood is, how they're doing, what their catches look like. And one day he says to them, follow me, I will make you fish instead of for fish, for human beings, for people, fishing for men. It says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. It says, as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were with their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat, and they left their father, and they followed him. And here's where, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you may have become immune to how strange this story is. You hear this, and you simply say, oh, yeah, Jesus, must have been nice. He showed up. He walked right up to them, and he said, follow me. Of course they followed But think about it for half a second. There's no of course to it on any level. There's this temptation when you're reading the Bible, if you've read it before, that when you come across something that's bizarre, you simply say, well, I guess that's just what it was like back then. But you get to this passage, you say, I guess sometimes when people were at work, other people sometimes came up to them and said, follow me, and they'd quit their jobs and follow them. No, sometimes people did not do that then, and they don't do that now, do they? It's weird. On the surface reading, it looks like one of those like, kind of bug zappers, like, poof, the light, and then, you know? Yeah, Jesus is there. You obviously had to stop what you're doing and follow him. But it's helpful to have a little bit of historical context to think back to what it was like for them, and it makes it a little more sense, although it's still abnormal and strange. And that is, you have to understand that they had a cottage industry, just like we have a cottage industry of people to help you get into the right college or the right school or the right fellowship or program. People selling you all sorts of stuff to help you hack and get in. They had a cottage industry around rabbis. See, rabbis were the religious leaders and teachers of the day. It's hard for us to understand how holistic of a sort of role this rabbi thing was. It was sort of like a mix of a professor, as we understand professors. A little bit of mayor thrown in, some power and decision about what happens in the communities and in the cities. And a pastor, probably more, all wrapped up into one. And what rabbis often did was take on students. Our word, disciples, religious word, but that's just what it means then. These people that would come and study with the rabbi, get into their school, and learn their way of life, their way of thinking, their way of being, their take on things. And of course, some rabbis were much more prestigious than others. You if you've heard the Bible, you remember this later. Uh, 
Paul goes on to say, ah, you, you think you were just some kind of Jew? Let me tell you what kind of Jew I was. And I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And I was in this school. I studied under Gamaliel, no less. And he, he references how important it was, the person that he studied with. So we think of it as a religious word, but for them, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, it was simply to say that you got into a special school. And what the rabbis would do is after you would come and study them for a long time, and before you were allowed to become a disciple, they said, you may follow me. That was the word. I grant you permission to follow me, to be one of my disciples, to be in my school. You're accepted. Come learn from me. Come join it. And they had these kind of schools. They would emphasize different things. Some people really emphasized the Torah, the law. Others would emphasize your habits. Some people offered insider wisdom. Other people talked more about power and politics. Now, usually when you want to get into good school, as I've already alluded to, you have to take tests, you have to do applications, you have to navigate all sorts of things. And it was similar in the first century. If you wanted to study with the best rabbis, you had to prepare yourself really well. You had to graduate from synagogue, which, me, which was only for boys, by the way, so you have no shot at it if you're a girl. And you had to memorize the Torah completely and be able to recite it. Then you would have to do further study. Then maybe you would start following a rabbi and prove yourself. And then finally, after all those years of preparation and work and sacrifice, you could go from being a novice. You could be judged worthy and finally accepted. And you would finally hear what you'd always wanted to hear, which is, you may now follow me. This is what people wanted at the time. And now this is just sort of on the surface of things, these rabbi schools, these traditions, these wanting to get forward, want to make, make the most of your life a certain path to power and prestige. But underneath this is this deeper hope, and you heard it read from Isaiah chapter 9, and that is that the deeper hopes of the people of Israel are that God would come with his final king, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, and that this king would come and he would bring this peaceable kingdom you heard about where all the weapons and clothing of war are burnt up and thrown away, and he brings a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness and faithfulness and love. And all the rabbis are busy teaching what this kingdom will look like and when the king's going to come and what the king's going to look like. But underneath this was their deepest hope. Hear it. Their deepest hope wasn't just to get into a school. Beneath that hope, if they could acknowledge it, is this hope that God had given them centuries before that they would encounter him. That they would be in present, deep, real relationship with the God of the universe. That he would come and walk with them and bring his king and his kingdom to bear, to provide for all their needs, to tell them what's right, what's wrong, how to live, to nourish them, to keep them safe. And I would suggest that this is really the longing beneath all of our longings. The longing to encounter God more fully, to know that he's with us, to know that he's providing for us and nourishing us and walking with us. That that would be something worth following and giving our lives to. And so now we go back to Jesus there. He's not at home. He's in Galilee in a strange place. He's walking along beside this lake studying things, living there, it says. And he sees two fishermen. And since they're fishermen, we know that they weren't probably great students. 
They weren't there actually busy trying to get into rabbinic school, were they? It was only the best of the best who continued on with their studies past the age of 12 or 13. These guys are humble tradesmen, respectable enough, but not rabbinic material. And Jesus walks up to them. Their eyes are down, on their nets, busy with their daily work, going about their routines. And then this strange and unexpected command comes to them from Jesus. He says, follow me. What does this tell us about Jesus? If you think back now to what we know about the relationship between rabbis and their disciples, you begin to see how strange it is what Jesus does here. These people aren't looking for a rabbi to follow. They didn't apply to his school. It doesn't appear that they're trying to be more religious or become better people with self-improvement skills. It doesn't seem like they're looking for God. But God is looking for them. In Isaiah, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. He goes into the darkness, into the wilderness, to outsiders, to the place of the sea. And the one thing that the sea is symbolic of, it's got a lot of symbols in the Bible, but one thing it's definitely symbolic of, it's always symbolized with out there, terrible wilderness, and the nations. All the nations out there that don't know God, that are scary. Who knows what's out there? That's what the sea represents. And he goes to the sea. He goes great distances and lengths to come to where we live. To live there, next to the sea. To study these people who have made their life and their way of life and their livelihood around this place of tempest and storm toss and darkness and the nations. To study us. To be a student of how we live. To become one of us. To be with us. In order to do what? In this passage, it's to lead them beyond their ordinary life, with their heads down, and to bring them into something that they are not actively looking for. I've said that they had the deepest longing for it, and so do we. But isn't it true that we can just go about our busy lives, worried about the next day and the next thing, and forget our deeper longings, which are actually for God and for his presence and for his kingdom? He comes to people that aren't looking for him and he's looking for them and he's looking for us as we're settled into our routines and our comforts and he commands us to come with him after studying us to seek the kingdom. And this is what this very religious, unfortunately religious word repent means. I've told you many times that in the Greek it just means metanoia which means to have your mind transformed the New Testament talks about it in terms of uh, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. So each day you have your mind made new. You think differently. You let God's thoughts become your thoughts. But it also just means, colloquially, do a 180. You're heading this way. Turn around. Come this way. Follow me. 
You've got your head down in the nets, and I'm up to something more extraordinary, and I want you to be a part of it. This is what you're made for. Repent. Quit settling for all of these things that you think will satisfy you and seek something more with me. They don't know it, but Jesus is the rabbi they need. They don't know it, but they need to be in a school, and it's not just an ordinary school. It's a school of living in God's presence and living out his kingdom. The God who is the source of all things. This isn't a rabbi who's just going to teach some truth, but he is going to be the truth himself. He's not just going to teach us how to be good. He is going to bring goodness itself because he is what we mean by good. He's not just going to teach us beauty tips. He is going to be beauty himself and give himself to you. The truth about Jesus then and now is that he comes to us. He seeks us out. He comes to be students of our lives that we might hear him and understand him and believe him when he says, follow me. It's unexpected, but he's persistent, calling us, inviting us, commanding us to come with him, to follow him, and to learn from him. Anything that God does in your life, I want you to hear this. Jesus' love for you comes first. His call to us comes first before our acceptance of it. We don't choose him. He chooses us. Your identity, last sermon I gave a couple weeks ago, was about the beloved nature of belonging to Jesus, belonging to God through Jesus, through his death and resurrection and ascension, makes you a beloved child of God, but that's not because you act like a child of God. Your relationship with God is not dependent upon doing the right things, although you should. Your relationship with Jesus is built upon him coming to you and calling you and saying, follow me. It's the most important and the best thing that ever happens to us when he invites you to spend your life with him. And as I've said, we spend our lives waiting for wonderful things to happen to us, waiting to be discovered by this agent or this firm or this person. We want the world to see that we are really special, that we actually are worthy, but we're afraid it might not be true sometimes. We spend our lives waiting and hoping and working for that affirmation, for that sense of belonging, for getting into that community that confirmation of our significance. But Jesus comes to us and says, I've been studying you. I've moved in. Now, repent. Follow me. He opens the door for us to go through, like going from black and white into color or walking up from the basement into the sunshine that says he brings the light to the land of darkness. He says it to you and to me every day. Every day that we wake, he says it again. It's a continued reminder of God's call and claim upon us and his radical love for us. What do we do when he calls us to follow him? In the text, the response of these fishermen is they follow Jesus. His word goes out to them. They make the decision to follow. The Greek word follow is Akalutheo. It's a compound word. Kalutheo means path or road or way. And the prefix a means the same. 
So when the disciples decide to follow him, it means they are going to walk on the same road as Jesus. It's very literal. Hey, we're going to be nomads walking around establishing the kingdom. You're going to walk next to me. We're going to go on a walkabout. And as we walk, we're going to talk. We're going to learn things. We're going to observe things. We're going to study. We're going to be studied. And we're going to do some stuff, which I'll read here in a second. But I want you to walk with me. I want you to be my companions in all of this, in this life, as we wander about walking. We're going to have the same path. It means that they, the meet, they would literally walk the same road with him. They would meet him, travel with him, go with him, stop when he stops, eat when he eats, listen when he talked. They would try their best to talk like he did, to learn the things he was interested in, the things that he did, and they would try to copy him, like children copying their parents. And so again, this encounter is a holy disruption to their ordinary, but he's offering something extraordinary in their ordinary, a light flipping on, being called to something deeper. Now, it's interesting, I said that he studied them. He studied that they were fishermen, that this is what they cared about, this is what they knew. And it's important that he studied them. He spoke to them in a metaphor that they would understand. They're saying, you've spent your whole lives training to be fishermen. It seems like you're pretty good at it. Now I want you to take everything you've learned in that and follow me and bring all your skills, bring all your background, bring everything you know, but I'm going to teach you how to use it to catch human beings. So he uses what has been built in their lives, who they are, what they know, and he brings it with him on that path and employs it in something deeper and greater and more purposeful than they would ever have done on their own. See, he wasn't calling just them. He was calling them to other people, calling them to go with him and call other people into the community. And so they would have new highs and hopes that they never would have had just staying home fishing. They would also have new perils and fears and temptations and sufferings than they would have had sitting home fishing. It says what they did when they said, okay, we'll follow you. And they left their nets and they followed him. They went throughout all of Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues, just going to all the churches of the time, if you will, teaching. And he went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Again, all words that if you just translate, you know, in more ordinary speech makes more sense to us. They don't sound so religious. He was proclaiming he was yelling out about the good news of God's kingdom and he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people this is what they got to be a part of this long deeply held hope underneath all of the surface activity of the rabbi schools and the cottage industries of self-help and this and that, this longing for God's presence to come and finally make everything right by his presence. It says, here he is saying, the time is now. The kingdom is here. Watch as we heal. Watch as we remove afflictions from mind and soul and relationships and bodies. They got to be a part of this. Again, New sufferings that they wouldn't have had just living at home. They care about other people. They care about the kingdom. They care about seeing people healed. Stuff that they would have walked by. So they take new depth into themselves, even through the suffering of being with Jesus, the compassionate one. 
They also have new highs. They get to be a part of healing and restoration and excitement. They have concern for others that they wouldn't have had at home, for Gentiles and lepers and women. They have powers that they wouldn't have had for healing and spiritual gifts and proclamation, eventually for fearless and courageous martyrdom. Their lives were given this new dimension with richer emotions and new thoughts that were beyond them. Breathtaking experiences no rich tourist could pay for today in the most exotic locale. And it happened because they were encountering God and experiencing his kingdom. All because they stopped what they were doing, turned around, listened, and followed. Jesus is still calling people to follow him today. We can be given eyes to see our our lives take on a new dimension in God's kingdom. We can have highs that we've never had before as we hear and see and experience little demonstrations of this kingdom coming to earth. We'll have lows that we tend to avoid, like I said, compassion, suffering, the weight of forgiving one another when we fail one another, the burdens of other, others, rejection. We have concern for others we wouldn't have had. Whatever you find yourself on the other side of the aisle from someone, concern for people that are poor or even for the rich, for those who are different, for those who are old or for children, for other races, we'll have concern for people we didn't have concern for before. And new powers of self-control and generosity and insight and compassion and fruits of the Spirit as we follow. We'll see our lives made fuller. We'll see relationships restored. Bits of the world renewed even in our own hands and our own efforts. That we bring everything God has done in our lives, we bring it with us to bear. He sees it. He studies it. And he says, I've got a good use for that. But it's a little deeper and bigger than you may imagine day to day. He comes to be with us, to study us, to come into our world in order to deepen our belonging to him and to one another, to deepen our purpose in life, to use all that you are and all that you have and all that you do as a student in his school, as a follower of Jesus. We all want to know God's presence most deeply down. I think love God and love neighbor, the reason that Jesus summarized this is the summary of all of the Old Testament and all that God's ever commanded people before me is love God and love one another because this is what we are most made for. To love God and to know that we're loved by him. To love others and to know that we're loved by them. If we're going to know God in his presence, then we have to know Jesus more than as just a teacher from centuries ago whose words we read, more than as just a distant idea of a king somewhere invisibly reigning over things, although all these things are true. We need to know him more than just an acquaintance. We need him more than an idea or a hope or just a glance at him. We need him to move in, to walk with us, every step of the way as a teacher as a king and as a friend 
We need that more than anything. And this is the community, the school, that you have been and are now invited into. This school that you will never be worthy enough to get into, that you don't have to get the right application in or know the right person, or somehow find the right amount of financial aid to make it work. He comes to you where you are and he says, follow me today. You have to put down your nets for a second. You might have to leave your boat and your homeland and your father behind. But you get to come with me into this school. We will be living out the school of God's love, his peaceable kingdom, his healing, his relief from affliction. He wants you to come in. But to do that, we have to leave our nets. And I'll close with this. We have to leave our nets sometimes. We have to leave the boat. We have to leave our father and mother sometimes even. Another way to put this is we have to leave all of our accomplishments at the door. Some of you will be going to parties in the next month or two or have done and it's cold outside. If a lot of people come to a big party in the wintertime, you have to get to the door and there's just this huge pile of coats and scarves and boots, right? Everyone has to take off all these garments before they go in because they don't need them or want them when they get in there. And the school of God's love is like that. He calls us, and when we hear that call, we respond by coming, but we have to stop at the door and shed our ambitions and our accomplishments and all the things we use to distinguish ourselves from one another. Well, I was a part of this school. I was a part of that community. I belonged to this job. Lay down your vocational stuff, your identity as an artist or a mom or a teacher, whether the things you're proud of or ashamed of. Your vocation, your sense of morality. People think you're a good person, a nice person, a helpful person, a thoughtful person. That's a good, but it's not your ticket into his school. And even again, your negativity. It's so easy to assume that we all walk around full of pride and self-righteousness all the time, which is also true. But the flip side of pride and self-righteousness is just when you get down on yourself and you feel shame. And so you walk around thinking and you become identified with, I'm just a bad person. I'm terrible. I do these things. You have to leave all of that at the door because he says, come now, follow me. It's that simple. It's that simple. You leave your nets, you leave what's familiar, you leave your ordinary routine and you follow Jesus where he brings you into a new community, new relationships. And you can bring yourself, you can bring all that he's done in your life, and he will use it. But we also have to walk away from our ambition and our accomplishments. If you follow Jesus, you will become a fisher of human beings. And what I mean by that simply, it doesn't mean you have to leave and go to a missionary field. You live in New York City, the mission field has come to you. You're here week after week, people come in, people come out. You live your life. You will begin to see yourself more sticky to other people. You will see nets of people come into your life. You will find new relationships and you will begin to learn to live out with Jesus what it means to open your arms, to embrace others, to live out love, to heal affliction and disease and to learn peace in the middle of a warring culture. If you follow Jesus, it will be Jesus and people that begin to matter to you more than anything in the world that you will value the most in and through his church. And so let me invite you to follow Jesus again this morning, to become a fisher of men and women and children, 
and to enter for free his school of love. It's free, and it will cost you everything, but it's worth it. That's where Jesus is, and he wants to walk with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.